All right, good morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. If this is your first time to Remnant, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, we are uh, beginning a Christmas series uh, this year. And, uh, you know, it's always funny. I always say the hardest series to do is Christmas and Easter because everybody comes in thinking they know the story. And having read it and studied it and looked at it every year for however many years, and yet too often one of the challenges I have with the Christmas story is the Christmas story is, I mean, it's cool, um, but, but it's the meaning and the timing and the historical context and all those things that are critical to understand what God was doing. Because the picture is so much bigger than what happened that night and the next morning. The picture's huge. It's going to change the world. Now, I'm always excited about new series. And this one, we're going to focus on what I call the promised one. And it's important to understand that from the very beginning of the Bible, almost the very beginning, God reveals to us that although we sin, he's still going to save us. It's in Genesis. We're going to look at it. He promised to send someone who would fix our sin problem and restore our relationship with God. And throughout the Old Testament, he gave clues. We call them prophecies. And these are key truths that would allow people to see who the Messiah is. In other words, God says, look, I'm going to send a perfect Messiah into the world, a Savior, someone who's going to come rescue you and restore your relationship with me, and he's going to deal with the sin issue, and here's how you'll know who he is. And then he goes through a series of prophecies, and we're going to look at those that relate to Christmas. In fact, we're going to look at only 20 of them. There are hundreds, but we're going to look at 20. And God wanted to make sure that when the Messiah came, we knew exactly who he was, that we couldn't possibly miss him. We're going to look at 20 clues, 20 truths that, that identify the Messiah. And we're going to discover that only one man ever born, ever to be born, in all of human history meets those criteria. Think about that for a moment. When Jesus was born, he was just another baby born to no one parents in a nowhere place. Probably tens of thousands of babies were born that day. Nothing special going on. Yes, the events surrounding his birth were supernatural and spectacular, but it was the prophecies that set this man apart. The prophecies pointed to one birth and one birth only, a birth unique among every other birth ever to occur in human history. He was the promised one. And if you believe that the Bible is God's word directly given to us, then Jesus is the Messiah because you cannot read it any other way. You can change it, you can ignore it, you can act like you didn't see it, but no one else ever born back then or now could fulfill the clues, the prophecies given thousands of years before. Many try to accept Jesus without accepting the truth of the Bible that it's written by God, that every word in that book is true and it's written for us and it's always been true. So we're going to be looking at prophecies, looking at the promised one. But before we do that, we need to understand something else about the Christmas story that we're going to focus on today. You see, God not only ordained one man, one God man, one Messiah, one promised one, but he also arranged the world to be in a very unique historical, cultural, and spiritual place. He prepared the world for this incredible delivery long before the delivery occurred. We're going to look at the world that Jesus entered on that first Christmas today, and we're going to begin to understand what Jesus was up against from the moment he was born. And the background that helps us understand why he was born when he was born. Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In the fullness of time, I love that. An image of time ready to bust forth. If one second happens, it could be too late. It can't be a moment earlier. It's the fullness of time, the perfect time for God. From the moment Adam sinned, this day, this moment in human history has been ordained by God. It's his plan, 
his timing, his salvation coming to earth when he decides. That's fullness of time. A second later is too late. A second earlier is too early. This is God we're talking about. But what made the time full? What was going on in the world that Jesus, God, would step into? Why must Jesus come now and not some other time? Why did God decide this was the perfect moment of all the moments that would ever occur in human history? It is human history, you know. At least that's what Christians believe. This is not some fanciful fairy tale. This isn't some story made up. It's not a parable. It's not some legend passed down from generation to generation with embellishments along the way. What distinguishes Christianity from every other religion is our belief that there was a moment in human history when God himself became man, fully human, fully God, stepped into his creation in order to show us how to live to show us himself and to save us from the consequences of our rebellion against God. God becoming man is called the incarnation. Now, in reality, as you and I sit here this Christmas 2021, you either believe that moment happened or you don't. No middle ground here. In fact, Luke, one of the authors whose documents an eyewitness account of these moments wants to make sure that you and I read all about Jesus, would know that these are real events that happen to real people in real time. Events in the Bible are almost always tied to historical moments, so you'll know this isn't just some fanciful tale. Look at Luke's introduction to his first book, cleverly called Luke, which is the first of two, the latter one called Acts. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke is writing to Theophilus. We're not exactly sure who that was, but he tells them, look, I want to make sure that you're certain of what we've been teaching. I'm going to give you details. I'm going to give you historical anchors that you can trust, and then you can trust that what you're actually learning truly happened. As you might expect by now, since this is the most important moment in human history, it better fit into historical context, because this moment occurred in a very Jewish context, and it requires an understanding of the Roman world at the time of Jesus' birth. It is in the Jewish and Roman context of these times that we begin to understand this moment in history. That's when we begin to understand why the time was so full and why it was time for Jesus to step into his creation. The biblical record and the American Christmas story are not very similar. We've westernized this story over the years, making it look the way that makes us feel more comfortable. Luke 2.1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Luke immediately puts us into history. This is not once upon a time, not fanciful stories of Zeus and Apollo on Mount, on Mount Olympus, this is an event that occurred at a time and place when you can double check. It was Caesar Augustus's census. And they're all going, yeah, you remember when we all went home and we all had to be counted? Remember? Do you remember when we went home, Theophilus? Remember the census? Well, this is when it happened. The opening words of this famous section of Scripture provide the setting for the greatest of all stories, and it tells us that Caesar Augustus was ruler of the entire Roman world which essentially was considered the, all of the inhabited earth. In those days, which days? Well, Luke told us. He's told us about the miraculous birth of John the Baptist, and then he tells us, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Luke tells us that in or about the time of John the Baptist's birth, 
Two to three months, a decree went out from the king. We're told by Luke that Emperor Caesar Augustus mandated a census. Well, who is Caesar Augustus? We need to know that. Why? Well, I'm going to show you in a minute. He was born with the name Octavian, named after his father. His grandmother was the sister of Julius Caesar. He was a talented young man. He came to the attention of his great uncle. Julius Caesar eventually adopts Octavian as his son and made him official heir in 45 B.C. Octavian was the adopted son of a king. But within a year, Julius Caesar would die. Mark Anthony would stab him on the Ides of March, March 15th, 44 B.C. Do you know what the Ides of March is? It's the annual day in Rome when taxes for each person had to get paid. It's our April 15th. So when Julius died, he left the kingdom to three boys, Octavian, Mark Anthony, and Lepidus. They fought constantly for power, and the whole Roman Empire was launched into an internal civil war. It finally came to head in 31 B.C., so just think about that, 31 years B.C., when Octavian defeated Mark Anthony and the armies of his wife that Cleopatra brought in from Egypt. Now, I'm telling you all this for a reason. There's a test at the end. Not really. But Octavius became emperor of all of Rome. The Civil War was over. All the fighting had stopped. He had won the battle. He is now the emperor of all of Rome, the, the leader of the entire world. And he changes his name to Caesar Augustus. So in those days, while John the Baptist was being born, while Mary was carrying Jesus, the Roman Empire was trying to recover from years and years of a very destructive civil war that almost brought down the greatest empire to that time. The world that Augustus lived in and the world that Jesus was going to be born into was wrecked by destruction, brutality, and immorality. They just finished 20 years of a civil war. Farms had been neglected, towns had been besieged and ransacked. Most of the wealth had been stolen or taken. Administration and protective services had broken down, robbers on every street, unsafe at night. This is sounding familiar. Anyway, highways roamed the roads, kidnapped travelers and sold them into slavery. Trade diminished, investment stood still, interest rates soared, and property values fell. Rome was full of men who lost their economic footing and then their moral stability. Soldiers had learned to kill. Citizens had seen their savings consumed in taxes and the inflation of war and waited and hoped for some returning tide to bring their life back to affluence. Women now dizzy with freedom, multiplying divorces, abortions, and adultery. Rome was much like the American South immediately following the Civil War. But about 30 years before Jesus was born, along comes Caesar Augustus into that chaos. It's said of him that he came to a Rome made of brick and left it a city of marble. He transformed not just Rome, but the entire known world with roads and armies. He brought three things that turned the tide. First, he brought peace because he defeated all his rivals. No more war. Second, he brought political and administrative skill, which probably bordered on brilliance. He really was a gifted leader in that way. And third, he brought vast sums of money from Egypt to pay the soldiers and help the Roman economy. He defeated Cleopatra. The internal peace and order which Augustus achieved endured with occasional interruptions for about two centuries. Never before had all the shores of the Mediterranean been under one rule and enjoyed such prosperity. He would start seeds of what would be known as Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which enhanced the spread of ideas and religion across the entire empire. But as great a man as Caesar Augustus was, he was only a man. And the man who brought the answers also brought a great price. He demanded absolute power over the Roman Empire. For hundreds and hundreds of years, Rome prided itself on being a republic, a democracy. It's what we base ours on. 
nation governed by laws, not any man. The idea that no man was above the law and the Roman Senate and the army and the various political leaders lived together in sometimes difficult arrangement. Now Octavius would change all that. In 27 BC, he arranged for the Roman Senate to give him the title of Augustus, which means exalted one or sacred one. Now Rome wasn't a republic governed by laws, it's an empire governed by an emperor. The first emperor of Roman was Caesar Augustus. The title Augustus, prior to this moment, that word had only been applied to holy objects and places and certain gods. It clothed him in a halo of sanctity. He saw himself as a holy one. Make no mistake about it, Caesar Augustus declared himself as God and got the Roman Empire and the Senate to agree that Rome had finally found their God, their Savior, and his name was Caesar Augustus. You're starting to see why it was so important that the real Savior show up. In fact, about the same time Luke is writing these words, some of the Greek cities in Asia Minor adopted Caesar's birthday. September 23rd is the first day of the new year, hailing him as Savior. An inscription at the birthplace of, his Herod, of the famous Herodotus even called him Savior of the whole world. The Marian inscription, Divine Augustus Caesar, Son of God, Emperor of land and sea, a benefactor and Savior of the whole world. Indeed, the name Augustus itself identified him as possessing divine characteristics, if not actually being divine. The seed that would destroy the Roman Empire had been planted. The man who declared himself as God was setting up the arrival of the man who really is God. A spiritual battle's about to happen. Historian John Buchan records that when Caesar Augustus died, men actually comforted themselves reflecting that Augustus was a god and gods don't die. So the world had at its helm a self-proclaimed, widely accepted God and Savior. Luke, the historian and theologian, wants us to see this as the backdrop for understanding the arrival of the real Savior. The contrast couldn't be greater. Caesar Augustus had brought peace to the Roman Empire, but Rome and Augustus had bludgeoned it into submission. There was peace, but it was a dark peace, a Hitler kind of peace. No man or woman, boy or girl, could say a word against it without fearfully looking over their shoulder. It wasn't really peace. Augustus and his successors had not solved the basic problem of the Mediterranean world. They had obscured them for what appeared to be a failure in government. They substituted more government. And government wasn't the answer. Like every human institution that rejects God, it's just a matter of time until that nation, that empire, fails. Once social and political situations get bad enough, people will dismiss democracy and appoint a sovereign leader to solve the problem. It happened to Rome with Augustus, it happened to Germany with Hitler, to Russia with Stalin, and will, in my opinion, happen one day in the U.S. very soon. So in the midst of all this, Augustus Caesar mandated that every person in the empire be counted. Now remember, this is just one verse we're going through. One verse. The business of census taking grew out of attempts to regulate taxes, especially the poll or head taxes in Roman provinces. In some locales, it was the precursor to military conscription but since the Jewish people were exempt from military service, this would not have been the case in Palestine. No, why did Augustus take a census now? It wasn't just to know how many people were in the Roman Empire. A census at that time brought out two things. Each person had to declare themselves as part of the empire. And... A price had to be paid for each person. The census was all about loyalty and money. Caesar needed to know who was loyal to him and who was not. 
Note the foreshadowing here. The earthly king who had declared himself as God issues a mandate that everyone be counted. And they declare their place in the kingdom that they paid a price for that privilege. If not, the Romans would kill them as traitors. According to Leon Morris, Justin Martyr, writing in the middle of the second century, said that in his own day, more than 100 years after Jesus died and resurrected, you could look up the record of the same census that Luke mentioned. These are historical moments documented in historical sources. I often teach about how the, the, the events of the Bible are foreshadowing future events, how they're threads that connect the Bible from the beginning all the way through the end. In Genesis, man is being threatened by Satan who had declared himself to be God. Man sinned and God came to the garden to establish his redemptive plan. Now Augustus Caesar has declared himself to be God, and he's misleading God's people, and God came to the manger to begin his redemptive plan. In the future, God tells us in the book of Revelation, an antichrist will declare himself to be God, and God will return again to finish the redemptive plan he started in Genesis. The book is consistent from beginning to end. The story of the Bible, God's story, is about God arranging the events of human history to rescue man and reestablish our relationship with him. These historical anchors allow us to understand the context of this very familiar story of Christmas. Luke continues, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Another historical anchor, another moment, securing Luke's account with the reign of a very verifiable historical people. Quirinius was a real dude. Historical evidence validates that he served as governor of Syria twice in his life. Immediately before the birth of Christ, Quirinius was appointed governor of Syria, which included Judea and Samaria, and he was given instructions to assess the Judean province for taxes. His first duty was to carry out a census of that area so they could begin to tax in a new way. The Jews already hated their pagan conquerors and censuses were forbidden under Jewish law. The assessment was greatly resented by the Jews and open revolt was prevented only by efforts of the high priest Joazar. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that it is this census that triggered the revolt of Judas of Galilee and formed the Zealots. They wanted to overthrow Rome by force. They were essentially terrorists. And one would become a disciple of Jesus named Simon, the Zealot. Quirinius served as governor of Syria and nominal authority over Syria, Judea, and Samaria until 12 AD. These are real people, real human events, real moments in human history that occurred. Now think about the power Caesar Augustus must have felt. It must be an impressive thing to be in the ivory palaces of Rome to give a command and the entire world has to respond. It may be that well up to that point there had never been a man with power over more lives than Caesar Augustus. But like most men of ambition and authority, he thought a lot of himself. It's easy to imagine how invincible he felt when he made a decree that all the world should be registered for taxation. I make a command and the whole Roman world has to obey it. As he sat in his palace and made his decree, he thought it was the supreme exercise of his will, the ultimate flexing of his muscles. But he's just a tool in God's hands. God had promised that a Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. We'll look at that later. That promise had to be fulfilled. God said that in Genesis that Eve's descendants would one day bring a Savior. In Revelation 12, he tells us through John that his Savior would be born a woman and Satan would try to destroy him. All these moments are under the watchful eye and careful hands of God. How do you get a young couple from Nazareth down to Bethlehem when they might not be inclined to travel? Simple. Just walk through the political savior of the world. He'll do what you tell him to do. He's a pawn in God's plan, like everyone. He thinks he's in control. God's just moving him where he needs to move him. It's wonderful. 
We also see that Augustus, for all his accomplishments, couldn't really be the answer. God allowed Caesar Augustus to rise to unheard of human power for many reasons. In some ways, he was kind of like a Roman John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. At the end of the story, what's important is Jesus. Who does the world know more today? Whose birthday are we celebrating this month? It ain't Caesar. And when all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. There's no record in secular human history that Augustus decreed the census and commanded it to be formed in this manner, but it is consistent with what we know through history. He commanded everybody to go home to their census. County roads took people home where they belonged. It felt lessened to have the blow of taxes given to you among your family with your hometown. At least you get to see your family. It's a family reunion. And oh, by the way, we need your money. Seen through everyday logic, Joseph and Mary were insignificant nobodies from a nothing town. They were peasants. They were poor. They were uneducated of no account. And more importantly, we're going to see that they were total outcasts. But she understand who she was and who God was. Joseph and Mary capsulized the mystery of grace. The king doesn't come to the proud and the powerful, but to the poor and the powerless. As it is so often in life, things aren't like they seem to the world around us. Humble Mary and Joseph were the adoptive father and birth mother of the king of kings. I want you to think about what a praise report this must have been for Joseph and Mary. They were Jewish people, and they were aware of the Scriptures. They knew. I can almost guarantee you that once the angel made the announcement to Mary, they spent night after night reading about the Messiah and the promises of about Micah and others because the Messiah was going to be their son. It had been promised by God. They weren't idiots. They knew. So each of them probably started asking each other about Micah's prophecy. But you, O Bethlehem Epithath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when he, she who is in labor has given birth. And the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of his name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and the earth shall be their peace. Real peace is coming, God says. Now imagine reading the words of the old prophet, and you're Mary. Until the time she who is in labor, that's me. That had to blow her mind. And realizing the prophet was talking about her. They knew, everyone knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But they lived in Nazareth. They didn't have any plans to go to Bethlehem. There were no feasts coming up in Jerusalem. They were poor people. They couldn't travel. Joseph and Mary must have been perplexed, more concerned as the pregnancy moves towards its last trimester. Pregnant women don't travel. Then they hear Caesar Augustus has demanded that everyone stop what they're doing and go to their hometown. Now, at least two people on earth now knew that decree didn't come from Caesar. God was working out his plan. He had the power to make Augustus do whatever he wanted. This human little false god is doing what the one true God commanded. And now the poor people's couples forced journey to Bethlehem to pay taxes. They appeared to be helpless pawns in human history, but they're actually under the hand of Almighty God, moving through their lives for His purposes. The Messiah would indeed be born in a tiny, insignificant Bethlehem. As Mary traveled, her heart hidden from the world had to be keeping beat with the heart of God. She had to be going out of her mind. I can't believe this is happening to me. 
And as often in the biblical narrative, at one level, Joseph's journey is a consequence of a decree from Caesar Augustus. On the other, the universal rule of Augustus is under the sovereignty of God. Some may call this ironic, but it's prophetic, and it's exactly what God ordained. The baby Mary carried was not Caesar, a man who had become God. It was something much more incredible. It was a God who had become man. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. The trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, just outside of Jerusalem, is about 80 miles. It's not a short distance in those days. It was a significant undertaking, took time and money, but it was mandated. Now, here's what's interesting. According to Roman law, Mary didn't have to go with Joseph. He could have gone by himself as the head of the family and had his family counted. She didn't have to go. Why would she go? She's pregnant. She's in her third trimester. No pregnant woman travels in her third trimester. She didn't have to go. Yet here we find her going to Jerusalem. You see, we often think Mary was close to delivery when they made the journey, but that's most likely not the case. Joseph most likely was eager to get her out of Nazareth to avoid the pressure of the scandal. Remember that for the first six months of this pregnancy, Mary left her hometown and went to be with Elizabeth. She hasn't been home. She knew she was pregnant. She got out of Dodge. It wasn't Dodge. It was actually somewhere else. But now John the Baptist has been born and she goes home and she's now showing. It's likely Joseph got her out of town to protect both of them. A girl who became pregnant out of wedlock would have been absolutely terrified. The whole social structure was set up for children to be born within marriage. Genealogy and ownership of children was seen as important. Girls who became pregnant outside of marriage would probably have had to leave their homes and their families. In fact, under Jewish law, it was expected that the people who knew them the best would be the most outraged and carry out the punishment. It was more dangerous for her in her hometown than anywhere else in the world. There's the potential of being sold into slavery or being stoned to death. She may have been married off quickly or banished from her home and village, which may have led a woman to prostitution or slavery when she had no way of supporting herself. According to the New Testament, Joseph, after being visited by an angel, decided not to send her away and expose her, which he was supposed to do under Jewish law, but rather decided to marry her. Now, we don't talk about this enough. Once Joseph decided to keep her as his bride, he was making the public proclamation that he was the father of the baby. Even though both of them were innocent, the world saw both of them as very guilty. Another critical feature in God's plan. Joseph and Mary were seen as sinners. If she'd been pregnant from somebody else, he would have gone and killed the somebody else. It was obvious to this very strict Jewish society this couple had sinned. Their punishment was death. He was considered a rapist. She was considered a whore. No upstanding family or community would accept these sinners into their home or into their community. They were likely rejected by their family and their communities and certainly not welcome a home in Nazareth. Another reason why after Jesus was born, God sent them to Egypt and not back home. When Mary left Elizabeth, she headed home, but it's unlikely she could stay there. The people of Nazareth would try to throw Jesus off a cliff later because he offended them. It's possible that Joseph and Mary weren't safe. No one believed that was a legitimate child. From the moment Jesus was in the womb, the world was against him. They likely fled to Bethlehem because of the upcoming census and their awareness of prophecy, but they most likely were fleeing as well. So it's likely that Mary was probably seven to eight months pregnant when they made their way to Bethlehem. Very unlikely that she arrived on the night of her birth. Sorry. Unlikely. Nice story, but unlikely. 
While I'm busting your image of Christmas, she likely didn't travel on a donkey. Only rich people had donkeys. They were dirt poor. You think someone would let her ride on a donkey, but these were social outcasts. Everyone knew who they were. Everyone knew what they had done. So Luke tells us while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Oh, while they were there, while they were staying there. He doesn't say that night. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Wait a minute. There's place in the end, but not place for them. Hmm. Was there place in the end, but just not for them? You see, there was no place for them in the end. With simplicity in the economic, economy of language, Luke records this miraculous moment with absolute simplicity. It's incredible. This is the moment God comes into the earth and he's like, oh, and by the way, she gave a baby. Luke, who describes everything in great detail, doesn't seem to have words for this. She gave birth to her firstborn. Huge statement, very understated. Instead, Luke's description focuses on a few details not in any of the other accounts of the Gospels. He notes that his is Mary's firstborn child and speaks of a guest room. Now, we also have to talk now about how this story has been westernized over the years. The term Luke employs here is guest room. It's often translated in English as inn. If Luke was speaking of a commercial inn, there's a completely different word for that, which he did not use. In addition, it's doubtful whether a commercial inn actually even existed in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was only five miles from Jerusalem. No one stopped in Bethlehem. They go on to Jerusalem. Bethlehem wasn't on any major roads. This term that we call in was likely a guest room. Now, here's the other thing. Jewish people are all about hospitality. You would never let a stranger, much less a relative, go to some commercial inn. They're all about hospitality. Luke says there was no room for them in the guest room. That never made sense to me. My, my mother would kill me if I didn't give up my seat for a woman, much less a pregnant woman. Can you imagine a pregnant woman, obviously, towards the end of her delivery and not one Jewish man? Men who pride themselves on hospitality and family and welcoming people, not one man gave up his room for her. Really? You see, often this innkeeper's portrayed as a jerk. But it seems like everybody in Jerusalem was a jerk. What are we missing? Normally, Joseph would head home to see mom and dad, all the relatives. They arrived before the baby was born. This is a grandmother's dream. They couldn't find a place to stay. Can you imagine your son or daughter? They're on their way here, they're going to have a baby. No room for them in the inn. In peasant homes, an ancient Near East family and animals slept in one place. Animals located on the lower level. Mary and Joseph then would have been guests of a family or friends, but there was no room for them. Having a child in the family of David in Bethlehem. Everything. They got there ahead of the crowds, by the way. Probably months. But one thing trumped over everything else for a Jewish person, the Jewish law. In the eyes of the Jews, based on law, there were two sinners. They were betrothed. They were same as married, only not allowed to have sexual contact. They broke the covenant. We all know the consequences of breaking that covenant. If Joseph sent Mary away, she'd be an outcast, possibly stoned, and for the rest of her life, a shunned woman. 
By keeping her as his wife, he now joins her in the guilt of fornication, which he's innocent of. The term for them would be Joseph is a fornicator and she's a whore. Most consider this older man who impregnated this young girl before their wedding a child molester and rapist. She couldn't possibly have resisted such a man. We often talk about the shame of Mary, but I think Joseph was under more shame than she was. That guest room is more plausible here, realizing that essentially what they're saying is no soup for you. No room for you. Look at what Isaiah said years earlier. The ox knows his owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. When Luke tells us there's no room for them in the guest room, I don't think he's talking about occupancy. I think he's saying they weren't welcome. They weren't to be housed, they they were to be shunned. They had to come and be counted because Caesar Augustus had declared they had to do that. They didn't have a choice, they had to come. They couldn't miss. But this is their family, remember? Their family, this is a family reunion. And you know they're all going, they're here. They actually showed up, can you believe it? They're here. They weren't just whispering behind their backs. They were clearly vocal. There's no room for you here. And they had to make that public in the city because otherwise they'd look like they were part of this horrible event that happened. You can't stay here. You can't stay at your parents' house. You can't stay anywhere. You're not welcome here. Joseph and Mary were homeless, unwanted, shamed in their hometown. I doubt they arrived one night and found the town full. Mary had been on the run hiding since the moment she was with child. Family did not receive them, so they were left with the local hostels. In Bethlehem, the accommodations for travelers were primitive. An inn, if it existed, had to be the crudest of arrangements. A bunch of stalls for animals. Innkeeper provided the fodder for the animals and fire to cook with. God tells us through Luke that nothing was available to them, not even a crude stall. And despite this urgency, no one would make room for them. So it was probably in the common courtyard of the travelers where animals are all tethered that she gave birth to Jesus, not some private room. Only Joseph attending her. Usually the women of the town would be rushing in to help. The women of the town would all come to celebrate a birth, but now it's just her and Joseph. Think about the irony and symbolism here. Jesus, the Savior, the long-awaited Messiah, was being born in Bethlehem in the line of David, and everyone missed it because they were focused on the law and their belief that the Messiah would never come from a whore as a bastard child. Think how scared they must have been. Mary was probably 13 or 14. Joseph, maybe 20. Imagine her pain, fear, humiliation, the unjust and untrue judgment, having to expose herself to her husband, who's never seen her before. Their poverty, their religion, their innocence, the people's indifference, their loneliness, and their utter helplessness. They're in a stinking barnyard. Lowest of places, the lowest of people, they came there to be counted only to discover they don't count. Their experience will be that of their child, innocent but judged, rejected, shunned, humiliated, coming to his own to be counted, experiencing their indifference and realizing that for them too, he doesn't count either. Public judgment never goes away for Jesus. Likely through his childhood, he was called a bastard child. Even as an adult, the Pharisees tried to use this against him. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. Even as an adult, he's answering to his birth. The Pharisees knew the claim of the incarnation. They totally rejected it. You see, we've often in this story glossed over 
the social stigma to Jesus' birth that was true in the first century. If we imagine with our Western glasses that Jesus was born in some freshly swept, countywide, fair stable, we miss the point. It was wretched. It was scandalous. Nobody cared if she died in pregnancy. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reaches up to the heavens for help. The earth is cold and hard. Smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and straw must have been absolutely horrible. Imagine Mary, a 14-year-old virgin girl, never been intimate with any man, and now she's alone with Joseph, just the two of them. No family, no mother, no women. Both of them are inexperienced, they're alone, they're afraid, but they have enormous faith in God and his promises. Think about it when Jesus was born. Trembling carpenter's hands holding a baby. They're slick, I can tell you. I've done it a lot. Notice from the text that it's Mary who wrapped Jesus in clothes. No one else there to do that for her. Normally, someone would have taken care of that. Mary counted his fingers, and the couple wiped him clean as they could by firelight, and they wrapped him up mummy like no one helped her. She laid him in a feeding trough. It was clearly a leap down. The Son of God had just come from his splendor, stood poised at the rim of the universe, illumining everything with his glory, and dove headlong through the Milky Way into earth where he plunges into a bunch of animals, stares in the eyes of two freaked out teenagers. Nothing could be lower. He went from the highest of places to the lowest on earth, a crazy entry of the King of Kings and Prince of Peace. No child born in the world that day had lower prospects for success. Many, Mary and Joseph, in many ways, foreshadowed the life of their son. Because of the faith and obedience to God, they too would be outcasts, accused of crimes in which they were innocent, judged, ridiculed, and rejected by their family, shunned by religious people, not really welcome anywhere, homeless, poor. Many believe they deserve death and they deserve the punishment of God. No one believed their claims of innocence. No one believed that this child was from God. All they have is the promise of God, and that's all they can put their faith in. Their first encounter with Jesus is a lot like ours. Scared, afraid, unworthy, overwhelmed, and yet having faith in the promises of God. That's how we come to Christ. His birth is like our rebirth in Christ. We offer nothing but surrender. We encounter Jesus, our fears, our failures become drowned in grace and forgiveness and love. And much like Joseph and Mary, we just sit back full of God's wonder and say, how can this be? We must never forget where the story of Christianity came how it always begins with a sense of need, the stark realization of our spiritual need, our insufficiency, Christ himself setting the example. He comes to the needy. He's born to those who are poor in spirit. His life, his entrance into creation set the tone for the entire mission that was to come. The son of the most high God, God himself, enters the world umbilically tied to a low, outcast Jewish child. Think about that for a minute. She touches his hands. These are hands that have sculpted mountains. And without even a ripple of notice, God puts him into the lake of humanity. Where you would expect it, angels, there's only flies. Where you would expect it, the head of state, there's smelly animals. Mary and Joseph would experience this miracle alone. There were angels, but they were sent to the shepherds. There was a star, but it was sent to the wise men sometime later. This royal birth went essentially unannounced while the world slept. And my concern is that every Christmas we sleep through this story too. That God's doing the incredible, the miraculous, the 
most amazing thing. And every year we go through the ropes just doing the same old thing, not really thinking a lot about what happened. God became a baby and the world was forever changed. It's an incredible moment in human history. We're going to look next week at how this baby in particular was the promised one. The only baby ever born to fulfill that. But for now, as you enter the Christmas season, I want us just to remember what really happened that night and not the glossed up stories that end up on postcards. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the fact that you stepped into human history, that you were part of the story of humans. You are the most important part of the story of humans. But everything you did is tied to human history because you were orchestrating the purpose, the moment. It was the fullness of time. Caesar had declared himself as God. Thank you, God, for coming into our creation to save us. Thank you for caring about us enough, even when we weren't caring about you. God, there may have been no room for you that day, but please help me make sure I have room in my heart. Your own did not embrace you, but please, God, help me make sure I do. Help us to understand this Christmas that divine power is never mediated through human strength but through our weakness and surrender. That true greatness is not about our rights but rather our release. And even the lowliest of places can be sacred and holy when you're there. Help us to keep our eyes focused on you during the weeks to follow and every week that follows after that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.